This is Chris. Welcome to episode 258 of X Last, where uh, we are back for the, I guess, October season officially, since we are into the physical media right now. Um, it's one of those good news, bad news situations, uh, because yes, we're back, but it's also Excalibur Day. So, of course, mileage may and hopefully will vary, but uh, let's hop on in. This is Excalibur Volume 4, number 23. At a November 2021 cover date, the story is called In the Service of Lord Doom. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors Eric Arshinaga, letters VCs Ariana Marr. Designs Tom Muller, head of X for now is Hickman. Edits Bisa, Brunstad, White, and Sabolski. Cover price four bucks. Went on sale September the 8th of 2021. Let's start with a brief look at the cover. Just a very brief one here. It's got Dr. Doom in the forefront, of course, and he is flanked by our team and... I'm not sure if this is supposed to be like a direct homage to Excalibur number one from back in the day where, you know, like Captain Britain's in the middle or Brian Britain, I suppose, and he's flanked by the rest of the team. It kind of evokes a similar feel to that. Maybe I'm imagining it. Maybe there was a little bit of something to it. Who knows? But uh, into the comic, and we open up on Braddock Island, which appears to be on the move. Um... Last time out, I swear it was within, like, swimming distance of England. Like, very, very quick swimming distance. I guess swimming distance is a uh, is a rather nebulous um, metric to use, since, you know, certain people can swim very far, especially in the fantastical Marvel Universe. But I could have sworn, like, it was like a, a stone's throw away. Now, it's being referred to as being several kilometers off the coast. And I'm guessing that... Uh, we're, we're, you know, we're using kilometers to prove that our writer is totally down with the metric system. Anyway, Excalibur, they're asleep, and they're awakened by the arrival of Dr. Doom and a bunch of Doombots, which Doombots is always something I struggle to type because I always wind up typing Doom Boys <laughs> every damn time. It's like every time I try to type out Psylocke, I spell out, like, Cycloke, or it's just a mess. Anyway, I don't know if it's muscle memory or just uh, me being very, very bad at this, even after all these years. But uh, anyway, Betsy seemed to have been having a dream about, uh, well, lots of Excalibur-y things since the Hoxpox era kicked off. We see little blurbs of uh, Merlin and Morgan Le Fay, Quiet Counselor there, Malice is there, uh, her beautiful blonde British brother Brian Braddock is there, that weirdo Jamie Braddock is there. Uh, Reuben What's-His-Face and the PTA lady from the Coven. I mean, she's dreaming about a lot of stuff. But again, she is awakened by Doom. Now, Doom is here because Braddock Isle is the only place with a gateway to Otherworld. Now, Doom has learned that Morgan Le Fay, who he appeared to have uh, once had a romantic entanglement with, I, I don't remember that, that might have been... That might have been ages ago, or it might have been during my uh, little hiatus from the Marvel books not too long ago. 
Anyway, he's learned that Morgan has left Otherworld, which, I mean, that's not entirely true. I can understand Doom thinking that, uh, because uh, we know she was actually captured and kept in that weirdo Jamie Braddock's basement, which, of course, would be the name of the merch store for this program if there were a merch store for it, that weirdo Jamie Braddock's basement. And uh, she was down there while Apocalypse did, well, Lord knows what to her. Now, I'm guessing that her leaving Otherworld was just like the public story. You know, because the real deal might have been a little bit too dicey to explain away. I mean, she was basically being tortured, right? And tested and experimented on. Not a good look for the good guys. Now, Betsy informs Doom that, uh, well, yeah, they've got a gateway, but it's not like he can just walk on through. He needs a mutant guide. To which, he flips open his cape and he reveals that he's been carrying a wee mutant baby under it. Now, he speaks about how there are new mutants being born every single day on Krakoa. So that begs a question. So, uh, was uh, Doom, like, able just to saunter onto Krakoa, into Stacy X's orphanage, and just snag a baby and leave? Well, I mean, that, that is a, well, that's a very big assumption here that, uh, our writer of this book actually read Way of X, which is doubtful. Uh, we'll just say that Doom done kidnapped a baby and we'll leave it at that. That's probably just as much thought that was put into it. Now, Jubilee asks who he stole it from, and he wastes the better part of a page suggesting that, you know what, maybe it's my baby. Maybe it's mine before saying, nah, it's not. I, I don't know what the point of this is. Anyway, Betsy Britton steps to this and says that if Doom demands passage, well, he'll get it, but here's the thing, he's going to be accompanied by Excalibur. And I mean, it's probably been, like, literally minutes since they've last been to Otherworld, so I'm sure they're having withdrawals at this point. Gambit informs Doom that uh, Otherworld is a very different place right now, what with all the fair and foul kingdoms, which is to say it's not just Av Avalon anymore, right? Now, Doom takes this statement as a threat, <laughs> which I don't understand, but okay. I mean, this would be like me driving through a town I'm not familiar with, pulling over to ask for directions, and then accusing the person who gave me the directions of threatening me. It's... I, I don't know. Then it's Richter's cue to deliver his line. Um, this is definitely one of those high school play type of scenes, where like everybody steps to their mark and delivers a, delivers a line and then steps back into their mark. Now, Richter doubles down here. He actually begins to threaten Doom which Olvik finds to be adorable. He dismisses the goofball and turns back to Betsy, stating that she used to be an assassin. Well, he might be confusing her with the other one, but in fairness, there were some body-swapping issues afoot, that, uh, and they confuse and muddle even the sharpest of fake-ass comics historians, so I really can't fault Doom one bit. Doom then agrees to allow Excalibur to escort him and tells them to ready themselves, which... I mean, Richter's going to need at least three minutes to draw that line across his face, right? So, I mean, we need time. From here, we jump into our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Betsy Britton, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Megan, Saturnine, and Doctor Doom. There's a question mark and exclamation point after his name here. It's worth noting that we do get our, you know, on these pages, I never really go through the, like, the catch-up blurb, you know, where it's like, you know, with a story up to this point. But... In the ketchup blurb here, it refers to Reuben What's-His-Face as being Otherworld's ambassador. And, uh, hmm, well, despite the fact that there are four editors who were too busy snapping pictures of their lunch plates and retweeting actors and politicians to double-check this book, I'm gonna go out on a limb and suggest that might be a typo. I mean, he's the ambassador to the UK or England or Great Britain or whatever we're calling it this time out, but I don't think he's an ambassador to Otherworld. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Back to comics, and we're already in Avalon. We get a few steps in before Megan arrives to join the crew. 
Oh, and for some reason, Betsy kind of razzes Richter about being into big bad men. I, you know, I didn't think that his weird like arrangement, his mentor-mentee relationship with Apocalypse was in any way romantic. This might just be a case of tell, don't show, which, in fairness, has been quite prevalent in this title. Megan then tells Betsy that Brian says hello, and that she ought to come visit Strike. Now, Strike, those are those geeks who Pete Wisdom had resurrected either last issue or the one before that or the one before that. I don't know. It feels like it's been a minute since we last read an issue of Excalibur. Not that I'm complaining. The crew heads over to the Valley of Wailing Mists, where, uh, I guess, Morgan's Palace once stood. It ain't there no more. And, uh, you see, Doom needs to go there in order to get something back that he had left there. They chat a bit about Morgan taking the throne of Avalon after it was abdicated by King Arthur, and we do know from solicits that Arthur will be back pretty quick, at some point in the near future. Anyway, just then, an assassin appears uh, from out of thin air to try and kill... somebody? Everybody? I, I, I don't know. Doom flees the scene, leaving Excalibur to, uh, well, kind of just stand there. The assassin's gone, by the way. It just it pops up for a panel and vanishes. Now, they take a stab at guessing where this assassin came from, and they guess it might have come from Sevelith. But I thought over in New Mutants we found out that they were friendly vampires? I, I don't know. For whatever reason, Megan takes this as a cue to uh, dye her hair black. Um, okay. Betsy finds this to be weird as well, so I guess I'm probably not allowed to comment on it. Anyway, the team then rejoins Doom, who confirms that Morgan's castle is no longer there, which I thought we deduced that three pages ago, but okay. Doom mentions that he's here to reclaim a citizen of Latveria? Is this all new information, or did we miss an issue in between these pages here? I don't know. Betsy asks Megan and Richter to eat some dirt to see if they can figure out what happened to Morgan's castle. I mean, it looks like Richter's eating dirt. Anyway, he's down there with a handful of it at his mouth. Uh, Jubilee then summons some little glowy fairies, and, uh, I mean, have we missed several issues at this point? Nobody seems all that impressed by this, and uh, Jubilee's fairies disappear within, like, the, the span of, like, three or four panels. They do, however, tell her that Morgan's castle was taken to sell, and so our crew is directed over to the Crooked Market. It's worth noting that Doom asks about Mordred here, and uh, we're going to be hearing that name a whole bunch on the other side of the staples, so be ready for that. Um, now, Betsy says that Mordred is King Arthur's son and, quote, the darkest possible heir to Camelot. So, is it Camelot or Avalon? Is it the same place? Are there different... I, maybe one is part of the other? I, I really don't know. Um, Doom then asks about Merlin himself here, and Betsy informs him that... Uh, they ain't all that close with the old wizard these days. From here, we hop into info pages. Friggin' two of them. The first info page is a news clipping from the Crooked Caller, the premier newspaper of the Crooked Market. And there are three quotes about the witch breed. The last one on the page is from Josh. You all remember Josh, right? He's that one who left to live with the nice vampires in Sevelith in that New Mutants two-parter. Now, he says that the mutants are good, but, you know, he's probably biased. And I tell you, I should probably tip my hat to our writer for actually reading a book in the line that she or Hickman didn't write, so props where they're due, I guess. Info page two is about Mordred, the son of Arthur. He's the illegitimate son of Arthur. And there's something here about an uprising on May Day. Uh, Mordred has returned from the death several times. This feels like it's straight out of the Percy book of info page exploitation here. This probably could have been told, uh, you know, a little bit more easy to follow in sequential art form, but... It wasn't, so we'll just uh, take it as we get it. 
Back to comics, and we're at the Crooked Market. Betsy and Doom head in to chat up Jim Jaspers. The rest of the folks head over to the bar. Betsy introduces Doom and Jaspers, and they recognize each other. I mean, they're they're both fairly high-profile, right? Doom speaks of looking to reclaim his belongings from Morgan's castle. I, I don't know if these are belongings. I don't know if this is a citizen. I don't know. Now, Jim does this weird thing where he's suddenly up a ladder while Doom is left holding a feather duster, which makes me wonder how John Byrne would take this, because, you know, you just don't mess with Doom under John Byrne's watch. At least he didn't strike a match on him, I guess. Anyway, Jaspers locates a box full of Morgan's stuff. Now, before he can hand it to Doom, Betsy begins to object. You see, she doesn't want to see Morgan repowered or something? I'm not sure why she waited until this very moment to raise a concern. I mean, wasn't the entire point of this like whole exercise to get something from Morgan's palace? I mean, we've literally had 15 pages of this at this point. I, I don't know. Betsy then suggests that Doom got dumped by Morgan, and now she won't return his calls, which seems a little immature, and I mean, and kind of foolish, because Doom ain't gonna sweat this. Over at the bar, Gambit is rolling dice and playing cards. Now, he's using that deck of cards that he'd stolen from Saturnine's closet back before uh, X attends, and he flips down a card with a topless and nippleless woman on it. The other gamblers recognize this card as not being part of their deck, but then there's an explosion. Okay, um, now we go over back to Doom, who has just hurled a lamp at Mad Jim for, I don't some reason, I don't know. Jaspers offers Doom a trade, I think. I mean, it gets very, very muddy here. Uh, now, he says he'll hand over the box in exchange for all of Latveria? Maybe? Uh, Betsy steps in to put a kibosh on this deal, stating that she can't allow something that requires regular use of Krakoan gates to be on the table here. Doom takes her by the chin and says something about not needing a bride, which, I mean, feels like a really forced and unnatural way to reference that Bride of Doom arc over in Fantastic Four. Now, he also suggests that he could simply flay the skin off of mutants and wear them through the Krakoan gates if he so wanted. So, I guess point to Doom. Just then, a fury appears out the window. It refers to Betsy as being a friend of Mordred, which, I I don't know, is that like a nod to the old Friends of Dorothy thing? Maybe? I don't know. It's definitely here to target Betsy Britton, and uh, blast the bejesus out of the place. Now, Betsy does manage to protect herself, and Doom, I suppose, via her energy shield. She then asks if this fury is one of Mad Jim's, to which he informs us that uh, he was only responsible for creating the first one. And of course, that one's back from the opening arc of Alan Moore's Captain Britain back in the long-ago Jasper's Warp. Jasper then tosses Doom the box of stuff, stating that he accepts Doom's deal? I'm not even sure where we landed on this. Uh, Did they come to an agreement and I somehow missed it? Did Doom really just hand over all of Latveria in a random issue of Excalibur? Have I missed an issue inside this issue? You tell me, folks. I, I really don't know. Anyway, Doom and Betsy leave. They're soon joined by the rest of Excalibur, who are just high stepping it away from that bar explosion. Then they're surrounded by Furies, who keep referring to our crew as Friends of Mordred. Betsy goes toe-to-toe with a fury, telling it that it's no longer just a killer, now it's a citizen of Otherworld. Which actually gets it to stand down? Like it's really just that easy? Okay. At this point, everybody leaves. Everybody goes home. Now we wrap up here, and we catch up with Doom, who has just discovered that the box he'd gotten from Jaspers actually contained the entirety of Morgan's castle. He writes a letter to Betsy, and I think he also sends her the waters from Morgan's scrying pool? And so we hop over and join Betsy and Megan back at the lighthouse, where they pour the contents of the pool into a bowl. In it, they see that King Arthur cast out Mordred because 
Mordred is a mutant. Therefore, friend of Mordred simply means mutant. Well, that's that. Now, after this story ends, we do get an eight-page story featuring Captain America and Spider-Man by uh, Joe Quesada and Joe, John Romita Jr., which commemorates the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. It's a nice thing that they're including here to uh, commemorate it, and uh, I mean, they're not charging extra for it, which, you know, that's points to Marvel for sure. And I know that uh, John Romita Jr.'s art is certainly not for everybody, especially didn't you know nowadays. It, it is... He's not what he once was, but to me, it's still uh, still comfort food. So I, I will always enjoy seeing John Romita's work, and this is no exception. I mean, there's not a whole heck of a lot to the story, but there really doesn't need to be either. But uh, yeah, that's the issue. Next episode, uh, we'll be rejoining X-Force as they fight um, shadowy agencies, plants, or Russians, I guess. But we'll get to that next time. Uh, for now, well, what did we think about this issue of Excalibur? Well, um, it was kind of a mess. Kind of a mess, right? Uh, I hate that we wasted Dr. Doom on an issue of Excalibur. I mean, anytime you see Doom in a comic, it's always a good time, you know? Especially when it's not a Fantastic Four book, because you get to see, uh, like a strange dynamic. I mean, we're used to seeing Doom be bopping around with the Fantastic Four, right? But to see him with a different crew, I mean, that's a novelty. That's special. That could be very, very fun. But here it, uh... Like I said, it was just kind of a mess, and um, I probably shouldn't, like, wonder if this uh, Morgan Le Fay Castle thing is ever going to come up again. Uh, maybe it will. Maybe Dan Slott's got some plans for it over in Fantastic Four. Maybe Teeny's setting up a limited series or an ongoing series featuring Doom, you know, after Excalibur and X-Corp wrap-up. I, I really don't know. So yeah, I really didn't enjoy this all that much here. The art was fantastic, as it always is. But uh, rather than just repeat myself and get kind of swept up in negative thoughts about the issue, I'll probably just put a pin in it there. I do want to say, though, that, uh, you know, we sometimes talk about that nebulous um, metric of heart or passion. And, uh, you know, credit where it's due, I feel like Ms. Howard has uh, much more passion for these fantasy stories than she does for the stories we're getting over in X-Corp, or the, I guess, the story we're getting over in X-Corp, which feels like it could be basically boiled down to corporations are bad because the media, celebrities, and politicians all told me that the corporations are bad, despite the fact that the media, celebrities, and politicians are all paid by those corporations. And, uh, I mean, everybody who works at Marvel is also being paid by a giant corporation, so... Uh, I don't know, it's hard to take anything in that book all that seriously. It's more a statement than a story, and the statement is uh, kind of uninformed, very hypocritical, and uh, just doesn't land all that well. But again, credit where it's due. <laughs> the fantasy stuff seems to be right up Ms. Howard's alley. It seems to be something she's passionate about, and uh, hey, for that I'm happy for her. It ain't my favorite stuff, but I'm sure there are folks out there who are enjoying it, so uh, more power to them as well. But that's uh, going to do it for my thoughts on Excalibur number, was it, 23, I think. But from here, let's hop into the mailbag. And it's a very special mailbag indeed, because it's the return of Damien to these airwaves. And uh, Damien's talking about Wolverine number 12. He says, hi, Chris. Sorry I've been gone so long, but I'm back with my comments. I've had a tough few weeks in various ways, and I've fallen behind on X-Lapse. But I'm determined to keep following every episode. It just might take me a while. I have no intention of becoming X-Lapsed lapsed. Podbean's telling me I have 47 episodes to listen to, so I don't see catching up anytime soon, but I'll keep going. 
Wow, 47 episodes of me in your future. I'm I'm very sorry about that. That sounds like a, almost a punishment. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, kind of. Uh, Damien continues. I was so glad to see you relaunch the Patreon. $5 a month seems an absolute bargain for all the great episodes you do. Just so you know, I'm specifically sending you the money that I'm not spending on X-Corp every month. Sadly, it is available on Marvel Unlimited, so I still get to read it. (laughs) You know, that's one angle I didn't think about doing here. Just saying, like, hey, just send me the money that you didn't spend on X-Corp. Because, uh, yeah, nobody should be buying that book. Nobody should be buying that book. But uh, thank you so much for your kind words there, Damien. It really does mean a lot. The decision to uh, go back into the Patreon realm was one that I didn't take lightly. You know, I uh, was very, very trepidatious about stepping back into that. And uh, I tell you, all the support I've received already has uh, just been very eye-opening and just, just plain wonderful. Uh, Damien continues, On to this issue of Wolverine. I suppose we can say it isn't as bad as X-Corp. True. Every single one of your criticisms is valid. The Vampire Nation plot has gone on way too long, and I wasn't that interested when it started. It's all a bit blah. Well, that was an incisive commentary. I bet you're glad I'm back. No, no, with absolutely no joking, I am so happy that you're back here. I was uh, so happy to see your latest messages. It put me at ease, and it just felt right to be getting them. So thank you so much for uh, for writing in, and uh, I can't wait to hear more. Next up, we got a letter from Evan, and he's talking about uh, well, one of the biggies of uh, recent times here, X-Factor number 10. And he says, I'm with you. I, I can't fault the creative team for this one. They did the best they could do with what they had to work with. Absolutely, this deserved a higher page count, and the extra dollar Marvel is usually so willing to charge us. Although, oddly enough, I feel like this could have benefited from another issue before the gala. I know they've been building up iBoy, but it still feels like he leapt forward too fast. And Prodigy's mystery went from slow burn to resolution too quickly to really be judged. And yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, this one definitely deserved, it deserved at the very least, uh, an exercised final issue, right? Especially since X-Factor really didn't get to do X-Factor things for the entire time, right? They had to, cl- they had to fill in all these resolutions just to kind of tie off their loose ends. And then we had to do the Wanda thing. Which, let's face it, was the reason that, like, three-quarters of the people who bought this issue bought this issue. <laughs> they weren't buying it. They didn't care about Prodigy. They didn't care about iBoy. They didn't care about Deck and Dakin. They cared about seeing the dead body. And just like I talked about when we covered that issue, I feel like that did the entire volume a disservice. Because this volume, I mean, and I've said this before, it started out pretty rough for me. I did not like it out of the gate. It took until, like, the... I think it was the Exitens issue. I think that was issue three or four. I think it was four. But that's where this series started to come around for me. And then from there, I mean, we hit the ground running. Everything up until, you know, the acts of cancellation began to fall was very well done. We got great characterization. We got subplots. Like I said, it was weird that between Hellions and X-Factor, despite there being, like, the most far-out and untraditional books, at least at first blush... They actually were like the most Claremontian and extraditional, I suppose. They they felt very much like X-Men books, more so than pretty much everything else in the line. But unfortunately, I mean, this book is going to be remembered for the death of Wanda. Despite the fact that that was only like two or three pages in a ten-issue run, that's what this run's going to be remembered for. And that kind of stinks. That's not fair, because the book was very, very special. It was a very special book, and it uh, it just worked. 
but due to the editorial mandates or restrictions, the tenth and final issue really didn't. And since that's the issue most people read, I don't know that this uh, volume will be looked at quite as fondly as it should. And I mean, the, uh, the issue itself, I know a lot of folks were not keen on the Prodigy wrap-up, uh, citing it as being a rather problematic story, which, you know, I, I guess, yeah, you know, it, it certainly can be looked at like that. But again, this was supposed to have more time to slow burn, and they had to just get it in there. It was... You know, a case of what well, O'Comics Razor, as we call it. You know, it had to be the simplest and most efficient way to tell this story. Subtlety and nuance be damned. It just had to be told. It had to be fit, because where else was this story going to wrap up? Nowhere. Evan continues, Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora had an interesting development that hopefully isn't forgotten when they joined the Marauders. I'm guessing that they'll probably... You know, I'm, I'm completely guessing here, but since this is Steve Orlando... And uh, Somnus, it was his character that was introduced during the Pride special. I'd have to guess we're probably going into some sort of a uh, love triangle between Somnus, Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora. That's, that's my guess. I could be wrong. I don't know. But I'm guessing that's probably the direction we're headed. Evan continues, Just because there's no ongoing doesn't mean X-Factor can't show up from time to time as some of the most useful X-Wallpaper on Krakoa. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure we haven't seen the last of the uh, of the crew. They're probably going to be relegated to being just like or standing alongside that other very useful X wallpaper, the Five. You know, I, I will always joke that uh, any time that Tempest gets a line, it's like, oh, Tempest got to say something, <laughs> you know, because it so seldom happens. It's usually just the Five standing there in the background, and I'm guessing, yeah, we're probably going to have the Five standing around, and now we'll have like North Star and. Boy and Prodigy standing around with them. Evan continues, Let's see, was there anything else that happened? Oh yeah, the Scarlet Witch. Sometimes, even when something was spoiled, you can still appreciate the technique and the storytelling. That's not the case here, and again, that's not the fault of the creative team, because it was just a stinger at the end to set up the next story. What happened was all there was to it, and Marvel told me what happened within 24 hours of the issue hitting the stores although they did manage to give it a little weight by having speed there. And that's true on uh, all accounts there. Uh, it was a procedural scene, right? Um, I mean, the, the reveal anyway. It was just like, okay, there's a body there. I did appreciate speed being there. That was some good timing and uh, good use of that character. It was also cool not to have Wiccan there and have Wiccan kind of at, you know incommunicado because we get to see speed uh, you know, dealing with this and processing this on his own. I think there's... There's some good story in that, so that that's pretty cool. But the scene in and of itself was, and I mean, we've talked about the trial of Magneto number one already, where you know they make the deduction that it might have been Magneto, even though, I mean, this issue in this volume ends up with Wolverine saying, "Where's Magneto?" Because <laughs> I, I don't know. But as for Marvel spoiling it, yeah, that just sucks. You know, they they do this anytime they have a lead up to like a big reveal. It's like, I would love to just blame the people on Instagram and stuff for spoiling it, but when Marvel waits until like 12.01 a.m. on a Wednesday to just start revealing covers that give away the entire ending, it's like, I can't blame anybody but Marvel. And I mean, this isn't the first time they've done it, and it won't be the last time they do it, because Marvel prioritizes getting, you know, a blurb on the Entertainment Weekly website, <laughs> rather than actually fulfilling their fans and, uh, you know, showing some respect to folks who can't get to the shop at 12.01 a.m. But, I mean, I, I complain about that enough, I think, right? Or I, I make that observation <laughs> enough, I guess. 
But uh, next time out, uh, Evan's going to share with us his gala rankings, which I'm looking forward to sharing because uh, rankings are always fun. Rankings are always fun to discuss here. And I'd like to invite anybody to share their uh, rankings with us as well. But that's going to do it for the mailbag. Let's uh, head into some shout-outs here. I would like to thank the folks who shared and uh, engaged, you know, hit the little heart on Twitter on the <laughs> latest show announcements here. Uh, on Twitter, I'd like to thank Dave Schultz, Jeremiah, Ed Moore, Billy D, Walt Nealon, Joe Crawford, Pat Sampson, Jason Colby, Mark Jagger, Jesse D. Young, and Bill at Spy Vinyl. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jesse D. Young, Jeremiah, Chris Bailey, Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, Walt Neeland, and Billy D. Thank you all so much for helping to raise the profile of this teeny tiny little show. While I'm thanking folks, I would like to thank the wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed for all of their support. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse Young, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. Thank you all so much for your support and for believing in me. From here, let's hop into a little bit of news. Uh, first, uh, Chris Claremont will be coming back and doing a run on X-Men Legends. That's going to kick off in February, and this will be tying into his run on Excalibur back in the 80s. Next up, this is more of, uh, you know, a just widespread Marvel thing, but, uh, well, they've got their new distributor, right? Penguin Random House. And, uh, well, just like the last time Marvel tried going their own way, uh, there have been some problems with the first shipments here. Uh, over at Bleeding Cool, they have collected a whole bunch of quotes from shop owners, and, boy, it does not sound like this went all that well. And I do wonder if this is going to lead to any sort of delays in shipments um, in the future, or if it's going to, I don't know, we might just have to uh, grin and bear some of these early issues from the Penguin Random House era. I want to read some of these quotes to you here. I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, yeah, um, we got a quote here from Nick Kelly of Chimps Comics in Indiana. He says, about 60% damages at my shop. So 60% of their Marvel order came in damaged. Jason Passini at Got Comics in Illinois says about half of my order was damaged. I'm sure I can still sell it to comic collectors. They don't mind issues that aren't mint, right? Well, hmm, you know, as a, uh, you know, back issue bin trawler and a cheapo bin trawler at that, I'm used to having some dinged comics in my collection. But, I mean, those dinged comics are, like, 40 and 50 years old, and I got them for a quarter or 50 cents. Paying 4 to 5 to $6 for something with a, with a ding or a dent in it nowadays? I mean, for something brand new? Yeah, I'm not too keen on that. Um, Ramsey Ramirez from McAllen, Texas, is 30% damages at their store, but they're just happy that they actually got the shipment. <laughs> so... 30% isn't quite as bad as 50 or 60, but uh, it certainly isn't ideal now, is it? Um, now, here's one that I wanted to share here. This one might be the most telling about the future of uh, distribution here. A fellow by the name of Gary Slaughter, he says, As a retailer, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. I'm on the line with Penguin Random House as I throw this, and we're being told, quote, Dings and bends are sellable. You can't submit that as damaged. And I have to tell customers that to their faces. Wow, that's not great. That is, I was going to say it's not ideal, but that's like the polar opposite of anything positive, isn't it? That's uh, very telling here. And I mean, you know, if we gather 15, 20 comic fans into, or, and collectors into a room, 
and we ask them to describe a ding or a bend, we're going to get 15 or 20 different answers. Because a ding to someone could be a, a crease, or it could be just a tiny little dog ear. It could be a little, little bit of scaling at the spine. Dings and bends are, are a subjective metric here. So who's to say what's what here? You can get a book that's folded completely in half. If a retailer tries to send it back to Penguin Random House, they're told, no, that's a ding. It's like, well, no, <laughs> that's, that's more than a ding. Or maybe a cover's hanging off of an issue. And no, no, that's a ding. It's, uh, that's not great. And to have to tell customers this, it puts the retailer in such an awful position, as if they're not in a tough enough position as it is. And we've talked about how difficult it must be to be a comics retailer these days. I mean, if you're dealing with DC, you gotta, you have to find shelf space for like 60 Batman books a month. I, I mean, that's, <laughs> that takes up a lot of your real estate, doesn't it? That's not an easy thing to do. And now to add this... I mean, that just makes this whole deal a little bit more difficult. I'm sure it's hard enough to keep fans coming back to the shop every every week. And, uh, yeah, you know, if they come in and the books they pick up and they're still paying four or five or six bucks for these things are, you know, gross. <laughs> it's not great. And you're going to lose the collector altogether, the ones who just come in to send it to CGC to get graded 9.6, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's not great. Um, let's do a couple more quotes here. We got one from David Waits, or Waits, at All American Cards and Comics in Ohio. He says, uh, we only had two comics on the bottom damaged. And here's the, here's the rub here. The hoops they want you to go through to report damages doesn't make it worthwhile. They essentially want forensic evidence. And you even need to tell them the name of the person who packed your merchandise. Like, they're going to get fired if you turn in a damage report. Man, that... That sucks. That really does suck here. I, I, you know, I've had to fill out reports like that. Not exactly like that, of course, but, uh, you know, I had to fill out um, identity theft reports before. I've had to fill out uh, copyright claim reports before online. And the things they make you fill out make you feel like you're the thief or the, uh, you know, bad actor, I guess. Uh, you know, when I had my identity stolen, I was basically put on trial over the phone for not doing anything wrong, just being... A victim of something that happened. Uh, a couple of years ago, I found out my entire Chris's on Infinite Earth site was mirrored by a Bitcoin miner. <laughs> and so I tried going through Google to uh, to get this thing taken down because every single day they were swiping my post, putting it up and trying to mine Bitcoin. And from all the verbiage in the reporting uh, document or whatever it is, it made you feel like you were on trial. It made you feel like you were doing something wrong. And I can totally see... This being very, very similar to that. They, you know, they don't want to hear these complaints. They don't want to have to deal with it. But, uh, you know, if, if you're going to make them deal with it, they're going to make you work for it, unfortunately. Now, we'll wrap up with two more quotes here. And this is just about the, uh, the method of packaging. Because this is very, very important. Um, if you've been following these shows, you'll know that I get my orders every month from DCBS. And I have for over 10 years now. And I tell you, they've come through the regular mail, they've come through UPS, they've come through FedEx, they've come a number of different ways. And I mean, they're not always handled gently. You know, there are some times where I, I'll get the box and it'll have a, like a footprint, a shoe print, a boot print on it. And it's like, wow, this thing was really not treated well. But DCBS uses such great protection inside the boxes to where nothing's ever damaged. I'm trying to think. I, I think I can count on one finger how many times I've gotten a book that came damaged from DCBS. And considering that I've ordered thousands of books from them, that's not a—that's uh, pretty good. 
<laughs> That's pretty good here. So let's talk about packaging. Uh, retailer Ryan Higgins of Comics Conspiracy says the following. Oh no, the Penguin Random House packing of Marvel Comics is bad. Really bad. Like, really, really bad. Just normal boxes the same size as the comics. No protection. Most books in every box are damaged because it's shipped UPS with no protection. And yeah, protection is key when you're shipping anything, you know? I mean, you gotta insulate, you gotta protect what you're shipping here. I mean, there are, you know, eBay sellers who sell things out of their garage are packing things with more care than, uh, than Marvel's actual distributor. Uh, another quote here, Mike Beyer, uh, he says, We received our books today crammed in incredibly tiny boxes that had zero protection from the rigors of shipping, and literally 70% of our books were damaged. I can only imagine how things went industry-wide. It seems that these guys think they can ship comics like they ship their novels to bookstores and everything will be fine. I can only imagine how much money they will be losing over the amount of damaged copies that they will have to replace. And again, yeah, there's going to be some growing pains here. Uh, Penguin Random House, they ship books. And, I mean, books are different than comics, right? In collectability and, you know, you, you put them on a shelf, it's not, you're not going to be staring at the cover longingly in most cases. You're also hopefully not going to try to CGC slab a book <laughs> rather than a comic book, which is definitely one thing that I envy about book collectors. They don't have to deal with the garbage plastic that makes their books completely unreadable. So yeah, maybe this is a hiccup, maybe it's a growing pain, maybe it's something they will grow into, but I mean, I feel like we heard about this Penguin Random House thing like six months ago. That's plenty of lead-in time to maybe visit, you know, with Marvel, maybe visit with, uh, hell, uh, comic retailers, you know, how, how can we best serve you? But at the end of the day, you know, that's just like we learned in X-Corp, uh, corporations are bad. And, you know, while we're here, let's do one final quote uh, from Pete Kilmer. He says, Thankfully, ours were okay, but three pieces of tape, no protection, and given, given how thin those boxes are, in no way, shape, or form will they stand up to holiday shipping. And uh, that's something to worry about for sure because, I mean, in just a couple of short months, we're going to be shipping a lot of stuff. Them trucks are going to be full. And if... Uh, if a box of comics is on the bottom of a stack uh, with no protection and in flimsy boxes, that's not good. <laughs> that's definitely not good. Now, I haven't stopped in any local shops this week yet, so uh, maybe I'll try to get out to one today or one or two today just to see if uh, the books hit my shops in a decent condition here. And hey, anybody listening, if you want to do the same, please let me know. I'd love to track this for the next little while. It's kind of a... Uh, moment in fake-ass comics history even as we speak so i'd love to follow it and see uh see how it goes and lord help us w will there ever come a time where we're pining for a return to the days of diamond <laughs> that'd be quite the uh quite the role reversal there quite the cosmic shift the classic uh, monkey's paw wish right we get what we want but not exactly how we want it now speaking of shipping we do have some information on shipping. It is a Monday episode, so we got to do This Week in X. And I tell you what, Marvel finally updated their What's New on Unlimited page. So I can actually tell you what's hitting the app today. Got four X books hitting the Unlimited app. We got Children of the Atom number five, Hellions number 13, X Force number 21, and the biggie, X Men volume six number one, which really doesn't feel like it's been out all that long. 
to, to appear on Unlimited, but I guess it was. I, I mean, we're up to issue three now, so yeah, I guess it is a couple months ago. So yeah, you got four books on Unlimited to check out, but uh, we also have some books on the shelves hitting this Wednesday. We got X-Force number 24, all three covers of it. X-Men number four, all four covers of it. And X-Men Trial of Magneto number one, second printing, even though you can still buy literally dozens of them at just about every local shop. And I gotta ask you, you know, just last episode we did uh, the X-Men Green issue, right? We had Nature Girl. We gotta, we gotta see if we learn something from Nature Girl. Why aren't environmentalists getting all over Marvel and DC for going back to print on books that are still readily available at every damn shop? I mean, I understand the clout that comes with saying we're going to a second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth printing, but they're not necessary and they're wasteful. And I've yet to see anybody call them out on this. I mean, my go-to is Demon Days X-Men, which I think went up to either four or five printings, and I literally found about a hundred copies at a local shop uh, all throughout the printings. It's ridiculous. And again, I understand the clout. I understand that it feels like we're going back to the boom times of the early 90s when we say this is a second printing. But you see, back then, we went to a second printing because things literally sold out at the store level. And people really wanted to get these books, right? They really wanted to experience these books. Nowadays, they may sell out at the distributor level, but that don't mean anything. (laughs) That doesn't mean that they're selling out in any shop across the country and the planet. And just like I said a little bit ago, I mean, it's hard to be a comics retailer. This is just another reason why. So yes, folks, if you want X-Men The Trial of Magneto number 1, you don't have to wait till Wednesday. Go to your local comic shop right now, because they probably have like a dozen copies of it sitting on a shelf. But, my friends, that is going to do it for today. If uh, anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can also hear all the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find that on any of your audio devices and applications. Finally, we do have the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed, where there's a bunch of exclusive content and some behind-the-scenes stuff. If I mean, if I can call anything I do <laughs> behind-the-scenes, I, I guess it makes me feel fancy. So I'll, I'll continue to call it that. Uh, it is also very much still a work in progress over there. Um, I am open to... Any suggestions as to what sort of uh, stuff to create over there? So if you have any ideas, please, I'm all ears. But uh, that'll do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.